Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My brain ventricles were enlarged. And of course, that kind of freaked my parents out and everything. They told them that I'd probably be born with hydrocephalus, uh, which is a buildup of fluid in the brain. And that is a result of the enlarged brain ventricles. They kept me in the NICU for a little bit, the neonatal intensive care unit, just to monitor me. Um, I think I was born about a month early. I had a little bit of jaundice, but I don't, I think I was the biggest baby in the NICU from what my parents have told me. So. I was born at seven pounds, eight ounces. I think I was pretty much good to go, just, you know, recouping from the brain surgery. That was probably a mistake not to be upfront about it because kids were kind of just, you know, not sure about it. It probably didn't seem right to them. But I did end up, you know, forming some friends in Georgia. There was normal friend drama. I don't know if it was related to my stroke or not or just being a fifth grader. So those years were okay, not great socially, but I was able to succeed in school and do fine. I got more involved with health policy in general in high school and then just started posting on social media and stuff like that about my stroke just because I realized it's important to raise awareness and let people know that kids can't have strokes. Hello, this is Stroke Stories. I'm Mark Goodyear. Stroke can happen to anyone at any time, including teenagers, children, newborns, and unborn babies. The risk of stroke in children is greatest in the first year of life and during the period right before and right after birth. Stroke remains among the top 10 causes of death in children. It's estimated that one in 4,000 babies have a stroke either just before or right after they're born. After a stroke, patients often find there aren't a load of resources out there to help them while they recover. So we started Stroke Stories, the podcast, to seek out and to hear from stroke survivors. In this podcast, we hear from Michelle Balasiotis from North Carolina, who suffered a stroke while still in the womb. When my mom was pregnant with me, she was advanced maternal age, so she had extra ultrasounds. And she just had her routine ultrasound at 29 weeks. And then the technician left the room and they came back and they said that my brain ventricles were enlarged. And of course, that kind of freaked my parents out and everything. They told them that I'd probably be born with hydrocephalus, uh, which is a buildup of fluid in the brain. And that is a result of the enlarged brain ventricles. Um, so that's pretty much all they knew. My parents interviewed a couple neurosurgeons because they wanted to have them ready to go when I was going to be born for that brain surgery. And you put in a VP shunt usually for hydrocephalus. So I was born early, not due to the stroke. My mom actually broke her foot when she had me. So I was born via C-section. And then at three days old, 
the neurosurgeon found evidence of an old hemorrhage on the left side of my brain. And then he also confirmed that I did have hydrocephalus. So he put that VP shut in there. So at three days old is when they figured out I had a stroke. They kept me in the NICU for a little bit, the neonatal intensive care unit, just to monitor me. Um, I think I was born about a month early. I had a little bit of jaundice, but I don't, I think I was the biggest baby in the NICU from what my parents have told me. So I was born at seven pounds, eight ounces. I think I was pretty much good to go. Just, you know, recouping from the brain surgery. It was actually my mom that needed more time in the hospital. So they were like, ah, she's not ready to go yet. So I think after about 10 days, I finally went home. Michelle had to grow up with the after effects of stroke. Her recovery began soon after she was born. Growing up in the younger ages, it's hard to remember my social interactions much, but I started weekly occupational and physical therapy when I was six months old. My mom would always take me to those appointments, and I'm sure I had a lot of checkup appointments with you know, the neurosurgeon and physiatrists and a bunch of doctors like that, because when someone has a stroke before they're born or at a young age, you really don't know the outcome. So I was seeing a lot of doctors when I was growing up, and now it's kind of less, but it was important to get those checkups. So I would go to therapy once a week and occupational and physical therapy once a week. Learning to walk was slow. From what I recall, there was some weird time period where I did walk and then I stopped and then I started again and then that was it. I could walk from then on, but that was, I think, at 24 months. So about two years old, I finally started to walk. I started with a walker. I'm not sure how much I used it. I get the vibe that I didn't use it too much, but it was just a slower process, but I know my mom was very adamant to get me to walk. And I'm sure every day was like, come to mommy or something like that to try and get my first steps in. And that's pretty much all that I can tell about my early childhood. I started wearing an ankle foot orthotic on my right leg about that same time too, because they noticed that my gait was off. So as a result of my stroke, I have right hemiplegia, which is a form of cerebral palsy. So my right side is weaker and smaller than my left side. And then when I started school, it was kind of like I would tell all the kids that the plastic brace on my right leg just helped me walk better and leave it at that. That really wasn't an issue after that. I mean, the kids, new kids would say, what's that? And that's what I tell them. But I still had friends in school. And then I had testing done to see memory wise and everything. And so I have some problems processing multiple inputs at once and some short-term memory deficits, but I've been able to receive accommodations through all my years of schooling in order to still succeed. I think when I went to school, I knew I had a stroke, you know, going into kindergarten and everything, but I knew that the other kids wouldn't understand what a stroke is. So my mom didn't shy away from telling me what a stroke was. I'm pretty sure she probably just said I had my brain was bleeding or, you know, putting it in layman's terms or something like that. And I was just like, oh, okay. I moved away from my hometown when I was about 10. I lived in Georgia, a state in the U.S. for fifth grade and sixth grade. You know, I was 10 or 11 at the time. So that was that was a transition period. And most kids already have formed their group of friends at that age. And I was still wearing my plastic brace on my right leg. Um, when I moved to Georgia. And 
I was kind of in a funk where I didn't want to tell people why I had that thing on my leg. Probably my theory was I wanted to blend in as much as possible and not stand out even more. And so I think a couple times I even told people, yeah, I just broke my leg to, you know, seem, quote, normal. That was probably a mistake not to be upfront about it because kids were kind of just, you know, not sure about it. It probably didn't seem right to them. But I did end up, you know, forming some friends in Georgia. There was normal friend drama. I don't know if it was related to my stroke or not or just being a fifth grader. So those years were okay, not great socially, but I was able to succeed in school and do fine. And then I moved to North Carolina, which is about four hours away from Georgia where I lived. And then that was for starting in seventh grade and then all through my high school years. And I liked that a lot better. I made some friends right off the bat. I told people up front that I had a stroke because at that age too, I felt more people would understand what a stroke is. And they did. They were just like, oh, oh my gosh. And then I was more open to answering questions that they had and everything. So that went pretty well. And then what really made my high school years enjoyable was that I joined marching band my sophomore year in high school. And that's really where I found a good group of friends. Now, you may be thinking, how did she march and hold an instrument with her one-sided weakness? Well, I didn't. I did the front ensemble, which is where a lot of the percussion instruments are that, you know, can't march around like a marimba or something like that. Um, and I ended up playing the synth uh, or like a piano with just my left hand. And then I hit the bass drop and stuff. That was pretty fun. And so I was really thankful that my band director was willing to work with me, you know, found something that I could do and still participate in. And then I also played in the regular concert band. I played baritone um, because I could play that instrument with my left hand. I think the processing issue of the came out when I did music. So I might have had to work a little harder than other kids. But, you know, I was still in the wind ensemble band and everything. And it was enjoyable. I liked, you know, the group of friends through band. Michelle was able to thrive at school, but the physical consequences of stroke continued to affect her. So now that I'm older and this This kind of goes back to the therapy, too. I stopped therapy when I was about 10. And there was this gap from, you know, like until now, pretty much. So for eight years or so where I would be doing exercises or, you know, swimming or working out on and off, but not really going to a consistent therapy or doing exercises consistently during that time. And then I noticed over time that my gait had worsened, my knee is snapping in more, and then my right wrist is atrophying more. So now I'm also starting to get more knee pain. And now I think I'm feeling more of the physical repercussions of the stroke. Because like right now I'm taking a tennis class and that's really hurting my knees. So I'm not sure that I'll be able to go back to tennis after the class is over. So now it's kind of a matter of, okay, I need to keep up with exercises and strengthening my right side. And that's kind of the main focus of the stroke at this point. And then I'm working as much as I can on top of school with the Department of Neurosurgery. And there are a couple physicians there who are wanting to increase awareness on pediatric stroke. And so being so close to them, I said, yes, let me help you. So there's a physician who is starting a pediatric stroke clinic 
at UNC hospitals. And so I'm going to help her, you know, get that going and just help in any way that I can. Part of what I've done already is put together pediatric stroke hero bags just so, and I based this off an idea of an organization in Seattle, Washington called Pediatric Stroke Warriors. Um, But basically these bags have resources for families in them and then some toys for the kids um, depending on their age. And it's kind of just to let the parents know that they're not alone. Other children have suffered strokes too. That's kind of where I'm at is I want to help create a support system for parents. Ever since Michelle was a child, she and her mom have been huge advocates for greater awareness of stroke and its consequences. I started when I was eight, but I was kind of doing advocacy work with the American Heart Association. But that was more, you know, I did did that outside of school. That was a separate thing. And then I got more involved with health policy in general in high school and then just started posting on social media and stuff like that about my stroke just because I realized it's important to raise awareness and let people know that kids can have strokes. My mom is actually the president and founder of the International Alliance for Pediatric Stroke. So she has done a lot of work in the awareness avenue. Um, And she's partnered with the American Heart Association to get educational materials for pediatric stroke distributed. And so the American Heart and American Stroke Association will post those on their social media occasionally. And my mom and I have both done talks to medical professionals like EMTs and nurses about the signs and symptoms of stroke in children. That's kind of what we've done in that avenue, not only supporting the parents, but also educating the medical professionals so that they know to look out for a stroke. And despite the advocacy work of Michelle and others like her, not much is known about childhood stroke or why it happens. We don't know actual statistics because in the U.S. there's no code for it. It's called an ICT-10 code. And oftentimes it goes misdiagnosed or not diagnosed until later. But an old statistic that I don't know how accurate it is now is that one in 4,000 babies suffer a stroke. So it's a lot more common than people think. Like it's not some rare thing. Um, I formed the HeartWalk team this past fall. And just from the people that I know in the area, there was another little guy who had had a stroke on the team. And then two other people who had had strokes as a child throughout their childhood. And then there's also an occupational therapist in the Chapel Hill area that puts together a camp for kids who have hemiplegia. And that is the most common permanent neurological deficit as a result of a stroke around the time of birth. So a lot of those kids have had a stroke as well. Michelle suffered a stroke halfway through her mum's pregnancy, but she succeeded at school and has big plans for her own future. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Michelle reveals what she wants to achieve once she's finished university. An occupational therapist I had growing up, she inspired me to want to go to grad school to become an occupational therapist as well, just because I want to be kind of that mentor for other kids and to show them that therapy can be fun and see the smile on their faces when they finally reach one of their goals. And she explains the shortcomings in diagnosis of childhood stroke. If a baby is showing a hand preference before one year of age, that is a huge red flag that something's wrong and they should maybe get an MRI to see, you know, if that's the result of a stroke or something like that. But a lot of pediatricians here don't know to look for that and they'll they'll think, oh, they'll grow out of it or they won't realize that that's an issue. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's hear how Michelle coped emotionally with her stroke as she grew up. I don't think I really ever had trouble coming to terms with what's happened to me. And I'm not sure why that might be. It might be just because my mom was so supportive and, you know, growing up, it was never like, oh, my stroke is going to hold me back. It was always, we're going to figure out something that you can do. I did a lot of sports growing up. Like I did soccer, I did baseball, and my dad put a wire through the mitt so that it could open up. I did things like that. But when I talk to other people who are struggling, and I think children who have had strokes throughout their childhood may have a harder time accepting what has happened to them just because, you know, they don't get to go back to the life they were living before their stroke, depending you know on the severity of their symptoms and everything. I definitely think it helps to have other people or to have that support group where people who have had a stroke can talk to each other um, and just kind of share experiences and like, hey, I'm struggling with how to carry my lunch tray. Like, what do you guys do? Things like that, you know, how to navigate the little things in life that people don't always think about. It has been a large part of my life, and I can't imagine what my life would be like without it type of thing. Just all the people I've gotten to meet through advocacy, through the American Heart Association. I've traveled with the Non-Communicable Diseases Alliance and been able to have a lot of experiences through, you know, engagement with other people. And that's something I'm really thankful for. And an occupational therapist I had growing up, she inspired me to want to go to grad school to become an occupational therapist as well, just because I want to be kind of that mentor for other kids and to show them that therapy can be fun and see the smile on their faces when they finally reach one of their goals. And that's kind kind of the main goal right now is to get through undergrad and then onto grad school. That's really my main, you know, career goal. Other than that, I guess, you know, just continue to raise awareness for pediatric stroke and be a support system and help other people in any way that I can. Here, Michelle explains some of the difficulties with the treatment of stroke in America. I want to touch mainly on the diagnosis because I feel like that is where the U.S healthcare system runs into an issue. So when a baby has had a stroke, like I mentioned earlier, the most common sign is hemiplegia, the one-sided weakness. So if a baby is showing a hand preference before one year 
of age, that is a huge red flag that something's wrong and they should maybe get an MRI to see, you know, if that's the result of a stroke or something like that. But a lot of pediatricians here don't know to look for that. And they'll, they'll think, oh, they'll grow out of it or they won't realize that that's an issue um, just because I don't think it's something that they are trained heavily on in their, you know, throughout med school or anything like that. So oftentimes that can go missed around the time of birth. And then for children, whenever an EMT or an EMS, the emergency department comes, they don't automatically think stroke, even when a child may be showing the symptoms, the classic symptoms, like the fast symptoms, the face, arm, speech, and time, they don't automatically think stroke. And when a child is having a stroke, the saying goes that time is brain. So the longer it takes for the emergency people and the doctors to recognize that a child is having a stroke, the chances of them having more permanent deficits is you know, increasing. So I think the diagnosing needs work. And then the aftercare, I think we, we do a pretty good job with that. But that is if you have insurance. And then it depends on your plan of how many therapy sessions that you can have. Because with stroke victims, you know, it's important to keep up with weekly therapy, but it depends on how many sessions that your insurance plan will cover. And then it's better now with the Affordable Care Act because habilitative care is covered. And then before that, it wasn't. So parents would kind of struggle like, well, my child needs therapy. And, you know, they were kind of born with the stroke. It's not like they're going that are trying to regain their function. Like this is something that they were born with. So that was a struggle before that. So now it's better in that aspect with pre-existing conditions. But we do have qualified doctors as well, but they're clustered in major cities. So if you're in a rural area and you don't also don't have access to physical or occupational or speech therapy, whatever you need, that can be a struggle for those patients too. It can be hard if you don't have access or you have to drive an hour to get to an occupational or physical therapist, that can be a huge toll on the family. So I think a lot of the issue is a distribution of therapists as well. There is a local charity that I know about called Sarah's Project, but that is run by a family and they decided to do it after their own personal experiences. But there is nothing that I know of where you can kind of, you know, reach out to a charity or organization to fund more therapy sessions. What would happen most often is that these families would have to pay out of pocket and the full price, unless, you know, the clinic is willing to work with them or the family qualifies somehow with like Medicaid or extra therapy sessions. As you can see, it's, it's complicated and on a case-by-case basis of how the family would be able to get their sessions Finally, Michelle has advice for parents of children who suffered a stroke at an early age. I would say to, and I know that it can be hard, but to accept that your child has had a stroke and realize that it's not your fault, it's not your child's fault, and that they're going to be okay. You'll get through this. There are people who have been where you are. There's a support system online and then hopefully you can connect with some people in person as well to share your experiences with and even if your kid is going to have to do something a little bit differently than someone else they can achieve it they can do anything they want to it's just a matter of finding the best fit for them and maybe having to modify a couple things so that they can still 
enjoy life and have a good time. Keep up with your therapy. That's the main thing I tell the parents as well. I know I was never one to want to do home exercises, but you'll be kicking yourself as you get older for not keeping up with that. So just figure out a way that works for you to make it fun if you need to go through rehab and things like that. But also just don't hesitate to reach out to other stroke survivors. I know myself and lots of others, including, are willing to talk to you and help you through rough times, socially, academically, anything like that. Michelle has already achieved so much and has an incredibly bright future ahead of her. She continues to advocate for greater awareness around childhood stroke and is dedicated to helping other young people overcome their struggles with the illness. If you're listening to this podcast and have had a stroke, or somebody close to you has and you'd like to learn more, search for the Stroke Association online. For a dedicated webpage, search NHS Strokes. And if you're listening to our podcast on iTunes, please subscribe, rate and comment because that helps us spread the word. The Stroke Stories podcast is produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.